I'm Grant Haver. I'm Zoe Weinberg. And this is Next in Foreign Policy, the podcast where the next generation of national security and foreign policy leaders talk about the issues of today and tomorrow. This week, we are joined by Izzy Ernst, a Strategic Partnerships Advisor at the World Food Program. Previously, Izzy served as a senior advisor at the International Rescue Committee and chief of staff to the president at the Berlin State Agency for Social Affairs and Health. Izzy, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Can you tell us a little bit about both when and how you first became interested in humanitarian issues? My route in general into the sector has been shaped by a lot of twists and turns. I'm definitely not someone who always knew I wanted to work for the UN or in the humanitarian space more broadly. I grew up in a very political household. So I had a dad who was a politician and my mom was a politics teacher, but I wasn't really politicized. I think I grew up in this like European bubble in, in the 90s where things were broadly looking like we're going in the right direction. And so my first job out of college was actually as a management consultant. So very corporate. I was really excited about just lots of different new challenges. And then the Syrian refugee crisis happened in Europe. And Germany took in a million uh, refugees in, in about a year. And it's hard to overstate what this meant in my country because I'm, I'm from Germany. I'm from Berlin. And I was living in the UK at the time. And everyone at home was talking about it. Everyone was getting involved in some shape or form um, or another. So I started thinking about what I wanted to do. And because I was coming up in, in my job to this two-year mark with people thinking about doing something else anyway, I thought about getting a job related to the refugee crisis. And at first, I was like, I'm obviously going to go and work in a camp and started having conversations about going to work somewhere in a refugee camp and then figured out pretty quickly that they didn't need a management consultant. They very specifically didn't need me. My skill set wasn't a good fit. And then I got super lucky and ended up getting this job in the Berlin State Agency that was responsible for all the newcomer refugees in the city. And what had happened with that state agency was that they were in a huge crisis in the middle of 2015 because Berlin is a city state and city states had to take in quite a lot of refugees despite the population density because this was how uh, refugees were allocated in, in Germany. And so Berlin had to take in 60,000 new people more or less overnight even though we already had uh, huge housing shortages, et cetera, and definitely not the capacity in the state office to deal with that. And so the political leadership decided to put a crisis management team in place to help the state office build the structures and the processes that they needed in order to absorb that amount of new people. And I became part of this crisis management team. It was super, super cool because my skill set was directly relevant as an ex-consultant. And also we got to do a bit of a turnaround in government, which never happens because normally change is very slow. And we had a lot of freedom to just implement things because it was so urgent and everything that we decided to do had a direct impact on people's lives because we were talking about 60,000 people from all kinds of different contexts, a lot of them highly traumatized, a lot of them from 
coming from very different journeys, from, from very challenging situations. And these were people that we saw in our offices every day. And it was, that was a very, very inspiring experience, not just because of the refugees, but also because of everyone working in this local government department that was really overnight faced with this huge humanitarian crisis and definitely not equipped for that. But so many people rose to the challenge. And after that experience, I've been really trying to look for new opportunities to have that kind of impact, but also to be able to use the things that I'm good at, which is structuring and breaking down problems and and things that you don't necessarily get trained on in in the public sector um, and really bring that skill set to some of these bigger issues. I think when I took the job at the state office, I didn't know I was going to end up here working for the UN, but the world is widely different since then. I mean, we've gone through Brexit, Trump, a pandemic, and now this global hunger crisis where it really feels like the world is on fire. And, and so I'm really grateful that this experience put me on a journey where I can contribute a little bit to, to hopefully fixing some of these things down the line. For people who aren't familiar with what the UN World Food Program is, can you describe a little bit about what its mandate is and also, you know, maybe describe a little bit your role within that? Yeah, so the World Food Program is one of the big UN agencies. There are three Rome-based agencies that are particularly focused on food security. So achieving SD, the Sustainable Development Goal 2, which is zero hunger. And traditionally, the World Food Program is known for being the agency that responds to crises, coming in with the food trucks and delivering food and and essential supplies to to people in need. Since then, our mandate has broadened out. uh, So we do a a lot more than that today. And I I can go into this a little bit more. But our core mandate really focuses around achieving zero hunger in the world. So my role at the World Food Program actually focuses on our changing mandates. I'm based in DC, and here I work with international financial institutions like the World Bank and the IMF. And the idea here is that increasingly the World Food Program engages with governments on finding more long-term solutions to food security which is a little bit of, you know, a changing mandate from the coming in with the trucks and delivering the food to now building systems and and strengthening government capacity. And for this, we engage with development actors like these IFIs, um, and that's what I'm focused on. You mentioned that the world is having a food crisis right now, that it feels like the world is on fire. Of course, we all know that climate change is roasting us, but... How bad is the food crisis and what are the factors that sort of play into that problem right now? Yeah, I'm going to start with the top level figures to give you a sense of the scale of what we're talking about. So the estimation we have is that today we have 345 million people who are affected by acute hunger. Acute hunger means that your life is in imminent danger because you don't have adequate food supply. Like you don't know where your next meal is going to come from. 
345 million people is wild. Like this is an unprecedented crisis that we're facing. This is larger than the entire US population of people who don't know where their next meal is going to come from. And to give you a sense of relatively where we used to be, pre-pandemic, pre-COVID-19, this was 200 million people less. So we've added 200 million people who are affected by acute hunger just in the last two and a half years. So on this question of how did we get here, we entered 2022 already with a rising hunger crisis. Like things were already pretty bad. And we had compounding shocks like COVID-19 with all the economic shutdowns and rising debt levels in many countries, particularly in in low and middle income countries, added to that increasing effects of climate change. As you were just saying, Grant, the world is increasingly on fire. So in a lot of vulnerable countries, we're seeing more and more droughts, increasing flooding, hurricanes, you name it. And then on top of that, you have conflict which is still the largest driver of of hunger. So this is just the beginning of 2022. Six months later, we're now really facing the perfect storm because of the war in Ukraine. And here, the ripple effects have really just magnified this crisis that we already had, where the Ukraine and Russia together used to be the breadbaskets of the world. So between the two of them, they were responsible for a lot of weeds, cereals, sunflower exports, uh, but also fertilizer. So just weed alone, 30% of global weed exports came from Ukraine and Russia. And overnight, because of the war, the world was cut off from that supply. And what that meant uh, for some countries is acute shortages. And that's not just the countries that you would expect, like Afghanistan, Yemen, countries that people are familiar with where we're already facing a crisis, but also countries like Egypt um, and many many middle-income countries in in MENA and sub-Saharan Africa that relied on these imports from Ukraine and Russia and suddenly need to somehow fill that gap. But also because of this huge supply shock, we're now seeing increasing prices of food, fertilizer, and fuel. And so that really is affecting countries across the board. And that's what's driving these just insane numbers of people that are now suddenly facing facing hunger. One question I have on top of that is, how much of the work the World Food Program does is around sort of supply issues? Like, should the U.S. be producing more wheat? And how does the World Food Program help work with stuff upstream, right, of the sort of production as opposed to just like the distribution logistics, which is clearly also a core problem? The World Food Program is engaged in these supply chain discussions in multiple ways. So one of the things that needs to happen very urgently this year is to fill the gaps. And actually, what we're looking at this year is not necessarily a shortage of availability of food. The world still has a lot of food surpluses. It's more of an affordability crisis. And so the World Food Program can help here with being the intermediary. So one of the things that actually we're increasingly doing is procurement on behalf of governments, where we have access 
to some of these global surpluses, they might not have access to and they might not have access to them in on the same financial terms. And so one example is we're currently procuring food on behalf of Burkina Faso to just fill this very like, immediate gap that exists in the country. On this question of more the role of WFP in the upstream conversations, so one of the things that we've learned because of this shock is that we've been putting our supply chains at risk because they've been so concentrated on a couple of countries. And so we now need to think about how do we help countries diversify their food supplies? And here, a big opportunity is localization. So WFP has already invested uh, for a while in localizing our food supply chains. So we are increasingly sourcing from smallholder farmers in the region or in the countries themselves, where we then also distribute that, that food. So we have a strategy in place where by 2027, 10% of all the food that we are procuring will come from smallholder farmers themselves. And one of the interventions and, and activities that we're very actively engaged is, in is supporting smallholder farmers in producing more, producing to standards that allow them to then also export that food um, because there are all kinds of requirements around food quality and food safety uh, that they need to adhere to. We're also working with intermediaries like traders to do that more and more and source from smallholder farmers. Um, so that is a big uh, piece of work that, that WFP is engaged in. We are less engaged in, in upstream conversations around what's happening in the US. The US is very capable of producing producing foods. So for, for us, this is more, it's, it's a sourcing question. And maybe just one, one final note on that. What I was saying earlier, right now, it's more an affordability crisis. One of the big worries and concerns that we have is because of the fertilizer crisis on top of food and fuel is that we might have an availability crisis next year. And so this huge food security crisis that we're experiencing now might not be a short-term shock if we don't put the right things in place now to help farmers really harvest successfully and effectively now we could have a prolonged crisis that would get much worse next year how much predictive ability does the does WFP have? And I guess what I mean by that is like there obviously there are certain things like like conflict that are that are very difficult to predict how they're going to play out. But there are other trends around obviously around climate change, but also macroeconomic dynamics that drive prices and inflation and affordability and so forth that perhaps can be predicted to a certain extent. So I guess like WFP is obviously responding to crises in the moment, but how much are they, how much are, is WFP sort of looking ahead and saying, hey, we actually anticipate that on the horizon there may be a affordability or, or supply issue in this place? And, and how does that kind of long-range planning and short-range planning interplay? Yeah, that's a very good question. So we actually just published a hunger hotspot report, which is forward-looking from June to September together with FAO 
one of the other Rome-based agencies. And we do a lot of this predictive analysis in order to try and plan out resources which and, and really galvanize international support around these hunger hotspots where we're looking individually at, uh, at different countries where we operate in and the likely trajectory. So we have a, an early warning scale where we try to flag settings and contexts where things are likely going to get worse. The reality is that right now, as I said, the world is on fire. Um, and so we have a very long list of hotspots, which is also why we've been trying to have a corporate response to this crisis where not every country individually does emergency appeals because there's so many of them right now. I think the, the far more exciting thing with predictive analytics and what we're doing around this is around anticipatory action. And this is particularly relevant for climate shocks because there's actually a lot that we know and can predict on climate shocks now, which is very exciting. So we can use satellite imagery um, and all kinds of weather-related data to predict when a drought or a flood is going to hit. And we have very concrete examples that if we act early, so ahead of a shock, we can actually significantly reduce the humanitarian need and therefore also the funding that we, that we require in order to help people get through this. So if we take cash transfers, for example, it's one of the things that I haven't mentioned yet, but actually a big part of our response to crises now is cash transfers instead of food. So half of our operations now is giving people money because that has so many positive ripple effects like creating markets, giving people agency, giving people the opportunity to, to hedge risks. And we know that if we give people money ahead of a shock, they can prepare. So they can get their cattle into, into a safe place. They can make sure that they store grains to get through periods of, of extreme weather, etc. So like there are lots of things that they can do to prepare if they have the means to do that. And so what we find is that then after the shock, the people who need additional help is significantly reduced and it costs us less money. And so we are more and more engaged in these kinds of anticipatory actions, particularly around like climate change that, that I think are very exciting and very promising way to help reduce humanitarian financing that's needed, but also save human lives. So what's a good goal for actually thinking about success around hunger? Obviously, we hope that inflation won't last forever. We hope that the supply chains will get sorted out. But even when the World Food Program won a Nobel Peace Prize before the COVID hit, there were still 100 million people who are suffering. What's the actual goal here? How do we know when we're getting close? And will we ever be able to achieve a world in which no one is starved for food? So this is a very good question. Kristalina Georgieva, the head of the IMF, said before the pandemic that hunger is the world's most solvable problem. And I think this is how we are still looking at it. We are still working towards a world with zero hunger, um, as we've laid out in the SDGs. 
And while it looks like we're moving further and further away from that, I think we still believe that this is a world that's possible. I, part of that has to be the realization that all these multiple shocks that we're seeing now are not one-offs. In some ways, we're, we're looking at a new normal in the world with climate shocks, uh, potential future pandemics, all things that we don't, we hope not to see, but are more and more likely to, to persist as challenges that country have, countries have to deal with. And so, one of the things that we are thinking a lot in my team in DC about is really how we can help countries build resilient systems to respond to those, uh, to those shocks. And that is resilient food systems, but also resilient social protection systems and resilient preparedness systems. So when these shocks occur, which they probably will, how do countries react in a way that the most vulnerable people are still able to have enough access to food supply and are able to feed themselves. And, and I think this is every crisis is an opportunity. And I think this right now is a great opportunity to try and really pivot towards these like long-term solutions on food security. I think that there are a lot of solutions out there, a lot of tools that we have, a lot of capabilities that collectively humanitarian and development institutions can, can really leverage to, to support countries in this. And so I'm hoping that this is a bit of a we're tiebreaker now, where we're, we're moving forward in the right direction once we've made it through this incredibly difficult moment now. Switching gears a little bit, Humanitarian aid historically has often been used by countries as a political tool, as a way of having a certain amount of soft influence or global goodwill, et cetera. I think we certainly saw that in the realm of, of vaccine diplomacy or COVID, but it also, I think, applies to, to food relief as well. And this podcast is obviously focused on foreign policy. And I, I'm curious whether you think that humanitarian aid should be considered a foreign policy issue and a tool of international foreign policy, or if in many ways that actually contributes to politicizing it, do you think that humanitarian aid should be foreign policy? Is it foreign policy? How do you think about it? Yeah, so maybe you're going to start this question with the caveat that I'm very much speaking for myself on this and, and by all means, not at all uh, on behalf of the UN. So I think the first thing I would say about humanitarian aid and humanitarian agencies that deliver humanitarian aid is that we are bound by the principle of neutrality. And that is very complicated in practice when you operate in places like Afghanistan, Somalia, Sudan, or Ethiopia. But the key thing for us in order to do our work effectively is that we are neutral actors on the ground. And so when you talk about leveraging humanitarian assistance as foreign policy or like thinking about how humanitarian assistance can, can further foreign policy aims, that is a challenging notion for us that, that I would push back against because that 
compromises a little bit of this idea of neutrality on the ground. I would also say that one of the very exciting things about the work that I'm doing in DC is that actually we're giving a lot of power into the hands of countries themselves. Um, So any funding that is coming through international financial institutions, even if we are an implementer or service provider or or somehow um, engaging with them, always has the government as a partner at the table. And so this is, and that's very different to, to money that we're receiving from other donor nations. And I think that that is a shift that personally I believe in. And, and I think is, is, is kind of a little bit contrary to, to what, you're, what you're saying. So let me push on you a little bit. It's totally reasonable to say that your goal is to be a neutral actor when you go into these spaces, right? We don't want people's hunger and pain to be used as a chip of leverage for, for anyone, as Putin is doing with the war in Ukraine. However, supporting governments that starve their own populations is kind of difficult, right? So like North Korea makes choices that cause starvation amongst their people. The Afghan Taliban government makes choices that negatively impact the food security of their people. So how do you think about weighing that neutrality that you want to make sure that no one goes to bed hungry while also not subsidizing bad behavior from bad governments? Yeah, that's a very fair question. And that is a discussion, I believe, is playing out life as we speak in the humanitarian sector in, in, in many ways, right? Because those are the tough questions you need to ask yourselves when you work more and more with governments in these really difficult places. And the way that I look at it is it's less about supporting governments and it's more about strengthening state systems that ultimately serve the most vulnerable. In very practical terms, we've seen in the COVID crisis that one of the most effective tools to get people through this shock was cash transfers and social safety nets. It's social protection systems that we know in, in our countries where something happens, something bad happens, you get become unemployed or like COVID-19, suddenly the whole economy shuts down and we get a cash transfer from the government to, to help us get through it. More and more governments in developing countries are also doing that. And what we can help these countries with and the, the state systems in place is to do this in a way that you actually target the most vulnerable and then also put the right systems in place to have assurances and transparency around where the money ends up and ensuring that it does end up at the most vulnerable. And I think that is inherently aligned with our humanitarian mandates where it doesn't matter as much what government is in in power, but the point is that you create state systems that last and that can scale up quickly and that can get to the vulnerable people in the most efficient and effective way possible. Is that always perfect on the ground, particularly in places where we actually are not so much talking about those kinds of state systems, but places like Afghanistan? Of course not. 
do we have to engage with the Taliban in order to deliver food to out-of-reach areas? Probably. <laughs> and I want to just be very, very clear here. Um, I am someone who sits in a cushy office in D.C. I, am, I don't have to make these decisions. I'm not one of our humanitarian negotiators who has to have these conversations with the, with the people in power in these places. And it's super, super difficult. And I think the, the compromises that are being made are made by people who really know what they're doing. And I think this, this notion of neutrality is so important to protect them and the work that we do and the fact that we do get to the vulnerable people at the end, which in a hunger crisis like we're experiencing right now has to be a top priority. I mean, here we're talking about, are we able to deliver food to people who are at the brink of starvation or are we disengaging because we know that these powers in place uh, can be very problematic? So you're not sitting across the table from the Taliban, but you are sitting across the table from some pretty major financial players. Recently, there was a big kerfuffle on the internet about the world's richest man pretending that he would give a bunch of money to solving world hunger. Uh, obviously, he did not end up doing that. But why do you think it's so hard to solve the world's most solvable problem? Again, this is a very good question. One thing I would, I would highlight is that I do think we were on a good path before COVID. And we were making strides towards achieving SDG 2. And now we're faced with this perfect storm, as I've laid out, that we need to work through, that I think we, we need to pivot on some areas, like the localization agenda that I've, that I've talked about before. And in a world where there are so many competing priorities. And as an international community, I think we have a tendency to focus on one thing at a time whatever is like the most pressing issue that's on the table right now. And in a world where suddenly this is not just one priority, but 10, it's really difficult to work through them all um, at, at the same time. And so I think that's a little bit of the dilemma we're in right now, where there's so many, so many things on fire. But I do think that we have the tools and with the, political attention on it and goodwill, I think we can, we can get a long way, but it's just, it's more difficult than it maybe might have seemed a few years ago because of the state of the world in general. What do you think is the biggest misperception that people who are, you know, sitting at cushy jobs and listening to podcasts uh, have when it comes to food security and global hunger? Like, what is something that you feel like you encounter over and over again that is a misunderstanding of the problem and, and how would you correct it? I think it's a little bit of this response that we got to the, the billionaires appeal our ED started. And that was this whole notion of don't give people fish, give them the means to, to catch the fish themselves. And I think here there's a misperception that 
this is all, all we're doing is bringing food to people. And WFP is known to come with the food trucks. The misconception is, is has kind of two parts. One of this is that this is all we're doing. And I hope I laid out a little bit how we actually are really trying to, I think, teaching people how to fish also sounds kind of paternalistic, but we are trying to strengthen the systems and build the resilience to help give people the means to weather these shocks themselves and help governments do that. So that's one side of the system of the misconception. But the other side is also that you cannot not give people the fish because we're talking about people who are literally at the brink of starvation in some places and people who are affected by hunger. There's no way for them to have access to the next meal just quite yet. And so the big challenge we're facing now is we need to align these short-term responses that are necessary to save lives. And that has to be a priority right now. We have to save lives with these more long-term responses that foster resilience. But it cannot be one or the other. And we need to find the resources and the means to do both. Because otherwise, we, there are 345 million people who need support right now. So with that, let's move on to our final segment where we each talk about something either politically or culturally that we're following in the news this week. I'll kick us off. I just got off a plane from Antigua and Barbuda, and I wanted to highlight a story from the Twin Island State. So Carnival in Antigua and Barbuda is in late July and is a huge deal. It brings out everyone on the islands, even more tourism than is usual. However, this year, instead of a nonpartisan competition crowning the Carnival Queen of Antigua and Barbuda, which would later go on to participate in a larger regional-wide Carnival show, what looks like a backroom deal by the ruling Antiguan Labor Party made the first runner-up the selection rather than the person who won the, the competition. Of course, I'm not an expert on Carnival, nor am I an expert on the politics of Antigua and Barbuda specifically. What I found really interesting about the story is that the appearance of impropriety or corruption in a democracy, no matter how small, matters a lot. So this is just your regular reminder that corruption is a national security issue, that we should focus on it in areas that aren't just Russia and China. Izzy, what are you following this week? So I want to talk about a new episode of Brexit because we haven't had enough episodes of Brexit yet. There's currently a new dispute over the Northern Ireland Protocol going on between the UK and the EU. The Northern Ireland Protocol was this really complicated setup. It was actually a simple setup to this very complicated question on the border within Ireland between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland. And this was one of the, the sticking points in Brexit that they, they managed to work through by saying that there wasn't going to be a hard border within Ireland, but the hard border would be between, or the, the checks, the customs checks that are necessary would be between Northern Ireland and the UK. And so the UK is now saying that this is actually not working very well in practice and they want to change it. And they've just started deliberating in Parliament over changing this part of the Brexit deal. The EU is a little bit upset about it because they're saying the UK can't just unilaterally decide 
to change part of this uh, part of the agreement and how the Northern Ireland Protocol works. So this is one I think to follow because it's not yet clear where it's going to go. Right now, the UK has to decide if they want to try and enact this into law, and then the EU has to respond. The worst case scenario is some kind of trade war between the EU and the UK, which, in my opinion, is not really what the world needs right now, and hopefully is not going to happen. But it's it's one of the things that's been flying under the radar, but I think could damage unity at a time where really the G7 unity and in general, like European voice needs to be united. Zoe, what are you following this week? In light of the recent Supreme Court decision overturning Roe, I've been consuming a lot of analysis and content and commentary on that development. I wanted to recommend a particularly insightful article by a friend of mine, Charlotte Alter, who's a national correspondent for Time magazine. Uh, The article is called The Failure of the Feminist Industrial Complex, and it argues that, that essentially this current wave of feminism has been very focused on individual achievement and on cultural wins and representation, and in the process sort of lost sight of some of the nitty gritty of political organizing and around what it takes to get federal judges appointed and how to maneuver certain politicians into state legislative races and so forth. And as a result, explains how it is that even at a time in which most Americans support Roe v. Wade, it still, you know, ultimately was overturned. And I think very convincingly makes the argument that empowerment and inspiration are one thing, but at the end of the day, only power is power. So I thought it was one of the more interesting and insightful pieces that I've read on the subject. So with that, thanks for joining us. Next in Foreign Policy is produced in cooperation with Foreign Policy for America's Next Gen Initiative and is a proud member of the DSR Network. Please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find the show. You can follow me online at Grant Haver, follow Zoe at Z Weinberg, and follow Izzy at Ernst Izzy. If you are a foreign policy expert under 40 and want to be featured on the show, be sure to follow the link in the show notes. This week's episode is brought to you by Amazon Alexa's latest feature, Alexa Ouija. Did you want to hear the voices of the dead read your books or tell you about the secrets of the universe? Just sell the soul of your dead relatives to Chief Necromancer Bezos and then ask Alexa. Join us in two weeks to hear more about what's next in foreign policy. Foreign policy.